Good evening and welcome to Wednesday Night Bible Study. This week we're going to continue our journey into the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants in the book called The Rock, the Road, and the Rabbi by Kathy Lee Gifford and Rabbi Jason Sobel. It's a very, very good book. Lots and lots of information is in that book. I learned a whole lot. I hope you learned some new things last week as well. So we went to several different cities last week. So we're going to start tonight in Galilee, which is modern-day Israel. Now, there was an upper Galilee and a lower Galilee. Upper Galilee had many mountain ranges, averaging over 4,000 feet. Lower Galilee had smaller hills of 1,000 feet. The main cities in Galilee mentioned in the Bible were Nazareth, Cana, Capernaum, and far to the north was Caesarea Philippi. The Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake, 14 miles long and 7 miles wide. To walk all the way around it, it is a 33-mile trip. The Jews of Jesus' day lived on the west side of the lake, while the east side was largely populated by pagans whom the Jews regarded as unclean. Now, in the book we're studying, Kathy Lee Gifford tells us of what she noticed on her trip to the Holy Land. Her first trip was when she was graduating from high school. She missed her high school graduation to go on this trip. She described looking out on the Sea of Galilee and noticing that there were very few boats on the water and there were only a few buildings along the coastline. When she asked her guide about this, she was told that historically, Jews hate water. He explained that the Jewish people associated water with bad things that happened on the water. For example, Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days. Noah and the flood. Also, the Sea of Galilee, which is known as the Abyss, is known for sudden storms. Severe squalls could develop within minutes, with large waves reaching up to 20 feet high. Imagine how the disciples must have felt when Jesus told them to go to the other side of the lake. They must have been very frightened because they knew the dangers they could face. They knew a person could die out on the lake and never be found in the depths of the water, which is 85 feet at its deepest. Jesus has asked the disciples to go to the other side of the lake. On that side of the lake is the area known as the Decapolis, also known as the Ten Cities. In Jesus' day, the Decapolis was deep into pagan worship and forbidden to any Jew who wanted to stay ritually clean, pure, and holy before God. We also know that everything Jesus did had a purpose. His direction to the disciples to go to the other side of the lake, even though it was a place the Jewish people didn't go, Jesus had a miracle to perform for the tormented man living among the tombs. In Jesus' time, people were shut off from society because of their afflictions, just like the woman with the issue of blood. 
among religious Jews, it was and still is considered immodest and inappropriate to touch a man, even one's own husband, in public. But even worse, this woman was ritually unclean and could spread her impurity to anybody she touched. Now, she didn't spread her disease because if it was a female disease, it was her disease. But she could touch, her impurity could be touched onto other people. The woman was desperate. Imagine not being touched by family or friends for 12 years. She had lived more than a decade in shame as an outcast who was excluded from social and spiritual life in her community. She felt she had nothing to lose, so she decided to take the risk and was healed by touching the hem of Jesus' garment. This woman lived a life of literal exile. Can you imagine 12 years not touching your children, not touching your spouse, not touching your friend, nothing. Just isolation, total isolation. There are four aspects to exile. Spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical. Four aspects. Spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical. This woman suffered all four of these. She had physical pain. Her relationship with her family was hurt because she couldn't touch them. She was emotionally hurt because she was isolated and alone. She was spiritually hurt because she was not allowed to publicly worship in the temple. When she touched Jesus' hem of his garment, she received healing in all four areas when she just touched him. She was healed everywhere, in every way. Now, in the book, Rabbi Sobel also talks about five things lost through the fall of the Garden of Eden. But the five things lost, the first one is righteousness. After eating the forbidden fruit, discovering they were naked, their former perfection was just a memory. Because of this disobedience, mankind now stands as guilty sinners in Adam. So they lost righteousness. Next, they lost fellowship with God. Sin caused separation from God. Adam was not a sinner when he was created, but he fell from a state of innocence and from the fellowship he once enjoyed with God. Before they became aware of good and evil, they walked with God. They knew his voice. They were unafraid, but now they feared the presence of God. As descendants of Adam, we all now enter the world separated from God. The third thing lost in the Garden of Eden is the environment. See, Adam caused the cursed environment. The punishment of Genesis 3, 17 through 18, reveals that man's sin caused the curse against the ground, resulting in the troublesome thorns and thistles. The fourth thing lost in the Garden of Eden was life. Now there would be physical death. 
God's promise that Adam would die reveals the punishment Adam received for disobeying God's command in Genesis 3.19. Adam was told he would return to the dust from which he was taken. Adam disobeyed and physical death came not only to him, but also to his descendants. The fifth thing lost, innocence. The first death mentioned in the Bible comes from Genesis 3.21, when God makes garments of skin after Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve tried to make clothes out of fig leaves. This didn't work very well. So God clothed them because Adam and Eve could no longer walk before God in innocence. We wear clothes because nakedness brings about shame. I never really knew the five things, but this was very, very interesting. So I'm going to tell you, let's go to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a two-mile ridge with three summit, summits or high peaks. In Jesus' day, it was covered with olive groves and small villages, such as Bethany, Bethphage, and the Garden of Gethsemane remains there today. Bethany was the village where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. Jesus stayed with them the night before he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. The road from Bethany runs steeply downhill to the Kidron Valley and then up again into Jerusalem's old city of Jesus' day, which was much smaller than today's modern Jerusalem. What many people don't know is that located on the Mount of Olives are graves. Many Jews believe that the Messiah will someday arrive in Jerusalem through the Mount of Olives. And when he does, the dead will rise from their graves and walk to the Temple Mount. There are approximately 150,000 graves located there. It is fascinating when you look at that picture. That's just a small part of it. Who would have thought that they put their graves on the Mount of Olives because they're looking for the Messiah to come there? He's already come. I'm thankful that Rabbi Jason has figured that out and he did this study. He is a good guy. And you can watch him on YouTube too if you want to see anything. Now imagine for a minute you see Jesus riding on a donkey down the steep road into Jerusalem. There are people laying their palm leaves on the ground, their coats, and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, we all know that Jesus rode on a donkey, but I did not realize the significance of riding a donkey instead of a horse. A horse represents military power. They were expecting the Messiah to come in a military way to conquer and to restore them, release them from their uh, sin and all that. He rode on a donkey, which represents humility and peace. Again, Jesus says every, everything that happens has significance and a purpose. Jesus spent his last week teaching in the temple, teaching his disciples, particularly the lessons about the person of the fig tree, he engages in discussions with the Jewish leaders and preparing for the Passover. So Jesus followed the laws given by God to Moses. 
Therefore, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, which is commonly referred to as the Last Supper. And he taught his disciples how the key elements of the Passover pointed to him. In Jewish culture, Passover is known as Passover Seder, ceremonial meal. It is a special meal eaten on Passover, centered around drinking, and I did not know this, four cups of wine. Each of the four cups has deep spiritual significance and symbolizes the four distinct promises God made to the Jewish people in Exodus 6, 6-7. One, I will bring you out of, from the suffering of Egypt. I will rescue you from slavery. I will redeem you with my arm, and I will take you for it as a nation, and I will be your God. So, these cups have a significance, and we're going to look at them. The first cup is known as the cup of sanctification. Jesus began his Seder by reciting the blessing over this first cup. After the blessing, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. You'll see that in Luke 22, 17. The Jewish people respond to this first cup of sanctification by crying out, God, make us holy. Set us apart for your plans and holy purposes in our lives. So if Jesus followed all the laws and everything, he's doing this at the Last Supper. The second cup is commonly referred to as the cup of plagues. So the second cup is commonly referred to as the cup of plagues. This is the part of the Passover meal when the Jewish people remember that God redeemed them with great signs and wonders. They remember that God, through Moses, turned water into blood. The Messianic Jews know that Jesus, the Messiah, turned water into wine because he's the greater Moses. The third cup is the cup of redemption. This cup reminds them of the blood of the Passover lamb that was put on the doorpost of the house. At the Passover, when Jesus blessed the cup and gave it to his disciples, he did that with this third cup, the cup of redemption. He said to his disciples, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew 26, 29. Blood was crucial for the deliverance of the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. Without the blood on the doorpost, death would have come to their families. Without the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, we would experience the wrath of God. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are symbolically drinking and spiritually partaking of the third cup, the cup of redemption. The fourth cup is the cup of acceptance or thanksgiving. Cup of acceptance or thanksgiving. This cup looks to the future, to the coming kingdom. It was over the fourth cup that Jesus said, I will never drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, Matthew 26, 29. When drinking the fourth cup in the Passover, it is acknowledging and giving thanks for acceptance as children of the King, knowing our position, power, and authority in Messiah. 
I just found that so fascinating. Because I, I think I always, I always thought he just had the one cup. And they just drank that one cup. Because we don't know Jewish traditions. So when we learn something, it just opens up new thoughts, avenues of thought, and, and make deeper learning in Jesus himself because he was a Jewish person. And he would follow all the traditions. And he did these, and again, I think they're all very significant. So let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. Olives must go through three pressings in order to remove every ounce of oil. You remember last week when I showed you the picture of the um, millstone? They, I looked up the olive press, and that's what they were using. They were using one of those millstones to press those olives and press the. But you would think an olive doesn't. It's not very big. You wouldn't think it would have to. You'd have to press it three times to get all the oil out. But they said it takes three pressings to get that out of there. So, like an oil press being pressed three times, Jesus was being crushed by the weight of humanity's sin, so that just like the pressing of the olive oil, his prayer, Lord, take this cup from me, was spoken three times. The crushing that Jesus experienced for you and me that night in the garden was so severe that he sweated blood. Can you imagine the pressure? Think about it. I talked about the crushing. Those millstones are huge. We saw how big they were. The weight that Jesus was carrying in that garden that night. I, I can't imagine. And I can't imagine God looking down on him and knowing that he has to let his son go through that. I wouldn't want my kids to have to go through that. I don't think anybody sitting here would. But God's love and mercy is so great that he allowed Jesus to be pressed to be pressed in the garden. So now we're going to take a look at the death of Jesus. So the death of Jesus. The first thing I want to see is the 30 pieces of silver. They are significant for two reasons. Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah 11, 13, the handsome price at which they valued me. And it showed what the Jewish leaders thought about Jesus' work. They felt the price for Jesus' life was the same as a servant's life. So they didn't value him very much because 30 pieces of silver was nothing. So it was already prophesied in the Old Testament about 30 pieces of silver. The rooster crows, Mark 14, 68 through 72, shows us something different. Now, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Luke, and John, it says that Jesus tells Peter that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. However, the Gospel of Mark 14.30, it says, And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You see the difference? When the first servant girls questions Peter, it says he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Later, after Peter's third denial, the rooster crowed a second time. 
Now, since scripture is God-breathed and therefore accurate, even though it doesn't seem like it when you look at it in, two, in these different versions, we know we can know positively that there are always explanations for these inconsistencies. In the in biblical days, roosters were common within the towns and the cities. The first crowing often occurred around midnight. The second crowing could be expected before daybreak. Peter realized after the rooster crowed again that he had failed Jesus. So he, the roosters are there, and it's common, they're going to crow, but after three denials, it just struck Peter. Oh no. Just take a, take a look at the look of love. Luke 22, 61. This verse tells us that Jesus turned and looked at Peter after the rooster crowed. What did Peter see in Jesus' eyes? Did the look say, I told you so? Did Jesus look at Peter with anger in his eyes? Did the look say, how could you? No, Jesus wasn't gloating over Peter's failure. He didn't come to burden us with guilt or shame. When Jesus looked at Peter, it was pure and holy love. When we're betrayed or hurt, how do we look at people? Do we look at them, well, how could you do that to me? Or, I'm so mad at you. We, we do it. We're human. We do it. But Jesus, even though he was man, he was still God. And his look was love. And that's how he looks at us, even when we fail. And we fail him all the time. We're not perfect. But Jesus is so good. The next thing was scourging. The most brutal form of punishment. I wanted to get a picture of this, but they were all so awful. I just didn't want to put that one off. When administered, it tore the skin to pieces. It inflicted internal injuries to the kidneys, the liver, and the lungs. The victim was stripped of all clothing and chained to a pillar, not standing, but down low as if he was kneeling in a position, which allowed the torture to be much worse. You know, I always pictured that he was standing with his arms on hold, but he was kneeling down. They had him down low so that they could inflict more punishment. And of course, we all know it had the stones and different pieces of things on the ends of the cattail that would rip his body apart. And it's just sad, it's sad to think of all that he endured, but he did it because he loves us. He loves us so much. The pictures they show tell no tale of what he really looked like. He was most likely unrecognizable from what he was how he was tortured and torn apart. The crown of thorns. One of the greatest images of Christ's crucifixion. This signifies Christ's ultimate humility in trading his heavenly crown for a lowly crown and suffering of suffering and shame. 
Unlike the thorns we might find on a rose bush, the thorns used for Jesus' crown were likely made from the date palm. They're not little short. They're very, very long. If I remember correctly, they were like, could be up to 12 inches. The spikes were very thick. They were very hard. And they were growing up, uh, yeah, this is here, growing up to 12 inches long. The thorns of a date palm are known to, to possess toxins that can cause, in addition to excruciating pain, inflammation, bruising, and tissue damage. Added to what Jesus had already suffered, the crown would have caused an almost indescribable pain as Jesus labored with a heavy cross on his back and a crown of thorns on his head. I can't imagine. I never thought about that either. I always, you picture the thorn bush because that's what we have here. But these thorns would have really pierced into his head and would have caused even sickness because of the toxins. Uh, I can imagine. On top of being torn all to pieces, now he's, he's sick from the, the toxins and things coming out of those thorns. The next thing was the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross, which means the way of suffering or the path of sorrows. This is the final walk that Jesus took before his crucifixion. The walk to the to Calvary was about a half a mile, which could have taken one to three hours. Hard to believe it would take that long to get there. But he was stumbling along the way. He was hurt. He was in agony and pain. So he, but he had to walk to, to, to where he was crucified. Now let's take a look at Simon of Cyrene. All scripture has meaning. So why is Simon of Cyrene mentioned? It's for the following reasons. It gives us a lesson in humility. As he carries the cross for Jesus, who is physically unable. So he's humbled. He's carrying the cross of a condemned man, of a man who is in pain and agony. Next, he's not a volunteer. He did not volunteer to carry that cross. He was seized from the crowd and had the cross laid on him. It is thought that this shows that he would rather not carry, that we would rather not carry our crosses because of fear. Now, Simon's service perhaps represents the next one, which is the Father's act of love. The Father's act of love is to his son, to Jesus, who to temporarily ease his burden. How kind of God to allow Simon to take part in his son's last earthly journey. Man, he loved him so much. He was standing there looking on him and he thought, I'm going to help you, son. I want to help you, son. How many of us, I want to help my child. Help, I want to help you. Let me help you. Jesus is the same way. He loves so much, he wants to help. So he sends someone to help carry that cross. In Luke 14 and 27, it tells us that Simon carried the cross behind Jesus. Could this be a revelation for us that as we bear our own cross, we should be sure to follow Jesus. Be sure to follow Jesus. 
Next, we have the tree. Now, when we need to think of the tree as the tree of life. Eternal life given to us by Christ, giving his life for us. That's amazing. It's the tree. We think of it as a place that Jesus died, but it's the tree of life. Because it gives us life through his death. Next is Calvary, also known as Golgotha. In Aramaic, it means place of the skull. It's said that at Golgotha, it resembled a skull, that caves in the mountains looked like eye sockets. Also, many people were executed there, and it contained many skulls scattered about. Let's look at the hands and the feet that were nailed. As the hands of Jesus opened for the nails, the doors of heaven opened for us. We talked last week about whether Jesus was a wood carpenter or a stonemason. Probably both. We learned last week that there wasn't a lot of wood in Israel at that time. So in order to get wood, they would have had to bring it down the river. So I still think he probably did some woodwork, but I think he was also stonemason. And we talked about that because scripture said he became the cornerstone. So he knew about stones and how they were put together. Uh, remember, uh, the nails that were used to hold him on the cross leads us to believe that he was also a carpenter. Jesus understood the normal use of nails, how to hold things together. Those nails were symbolic of Christ and his church. They were nailed together. They just demonstrated the love of God. The nails were driven to purchase the church, us. So everything is so significant, so significant. Side was pierced. When the soldiers realized Jesus was already dead, they pierced his side as proof. Medically, the separation of blood and water signifies death. However, the real significance is that the blood signifies that Christ accomplished our redemption by dying for our sins. And the water signifies that the divine life flowed out of him who died for us. So, I hope you learned a lot of new things in this. See some of the significance of the different things that took place and how they relate to us in what Christ did for us. So we're going to go over the questions. Number one, there are four aspects to exile. Spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical. There were five things lost in the Garden of Eden. Righteousness, fellowship with God, the environment, life, and innocence. A horse represents military power. A donkey represents humility and peace. Now we also learned about the different cups that were drank from on the night 
that Jesus, uh, of the Passover. The first cup is known as the cup of sanctification. The second cup is commonly referred to as the cup of plagues. Third cup is known as the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup is the cup of acceptance and thanksgiving. Gethsemane means oil press. Now we learned four things from Simon of Cyrene. What was the first one? A lesson in humility. The second one, not a volunteer. The third one, the Father's act of love. I think you'll look at Simon of Cyrene a little differently after this one, I hope. And the last one, we should follow Jesus. Bear our cross. That's exactly right, Master. 